The word of the Lord came to me. The son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruits so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves with its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her kings and her princes and brought them to him into Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up, and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Last time we read from Jeremiah 17 about the two trees, the, the cursed shrub of the desert that withers in the, in the heat, 
and the blessed tree that bears fruit, the, the blessed man whose heart hopes in the Lord. Well, now we read Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel had been a teenager back in Jerusalem during the days of Jeremiah's preaching. So Ezekiel would have heard Jeremiah preach regularly while he was still in Jerusalem. Then Ezekiel has been taken captive to Babylon, and that's where he is now. And you certainly hear an awful lot of Jeremiah's themes returning in Ezekiel's preaching, though always with a little spin on it, because Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem and continued to prophesy during these events of these decades of the, up to the captivity of, of Jerusalem. Ezekiel spends those years in Babylon, so they're looking at the same problem from two different angles. Ezekiel takes Jeremiah's image of the blessed tree and, and blends it with Isaiah's idea of the branch. And it might sound strange at first how the, the topmost twigs of a cedar tree become a low-spreading vine. Horticulturists are going to be like, eh, this doesn't make any sense. But the story is told in a way that is, he's, he's deliberately reminding them of how God had taken them from Egypt, had taken a vine from Egypt and planted it in the land and it grew. This was from Isaiah 5 or Psalm 80. And this, is, this was the story of God's people, how God had, had planted them in the land so that they might flourish and grow. But they turned to other gods. And that's where Ezekiel not only gives us the parable, and after the parable you're like, okay, what's the point here? He very kindly tells us the point. That this is the story now of how Babylon has taken the son of David captive to Babylon. That this is now the story of how God's people, in their own attempt to fix their own problems, have made the mess worse. Because now they're looking to Egypt to save them. Well, that's a backwards, upside-down story. Looking to Egypt to save you? No. This, you should be looking to the Lord and trusting Him. God had actually told Jerusalem, this time your job is to submit to Babylon. Humble yourself and do what the king of Babylon says. But they refused. So it wasn't just the covenant with Babylon that they broke. It was their covenant with God. Because God said, you're supposed to submit to Babylon. And Jerusalem refused. But God promises at the end that he himself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, the branch of Jesse, and God himself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain that it might become a noble cedar, that all the trees of the field might know that the Lord is the one who brings low the high tree and exalts the low tree. The Lord is the one who dries up the green tree and makes the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Now, you hear that, and ah, oh, yes, God will do it. In Ezekiel's day, it was still 70 years before God would restore Jerusalem. But when he restored Jerusalem, he didn't take the sprig of David and establish the king again. That part of the prophecy waits 600 years until our Lord Jesus Christ came 
And God seated him at the lofty place on the high mountain, not just on earth, but at the heavenly throne, on the heavenly mountain, the Mount heavenly Zion. Think about what this means for Ezekiel and for those who hear Ezekiel. I know many of you wonder, what does it mean for me? Because so often when we think about our hope, well, our hope is Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And sometimes that sounds like we're just saying, well, yeah, when, when Jesus returns, he'll make everything right. How does that help me now? How do I live now? Well, you see, this is what we're seeing in Colossians. What Paul's telling us is that, is that any other hope that you set your heart and mind on is going to fall short. The only hope that endures, the only hope that gives you the grace to endure and persevere through all the trials of life is that hope who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Indeed, I would suggest that Psalm 112 helps us because Psalm 112 was written for people, actually in Ezekiel's situation, written for people who are in our situation, people who live in between the promise and the fulfillment. Psalm 112 describes the blessed man, the one who fears the Lord, like we sang about in Psalm 1 last week, but talks about what it means to fear the Lord, to believe God's promises and act accordingly even when the situation around us doesn't look promising. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, hear now the word of our God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. We saw last time how the, these, these, this first section of Colossians has something of a, a chiastic structure of how you have received, you've heard, you've heard the gospel, you've received it with hope and faith, and that hope, faith, and gospel language returns there at the end in, in verse 23, continue in the gospel, in hope, in faith. And then in chapter, uh, verses 9 to 12, Paul had prayed that we might please God being fruitful in good works. And then in verses 21 and 22, the being redeemed from wicked works so that you might be blameless in his sight, that you might be holy. And then the central theme of redemption and reconciliation all woven around Christ, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead. Because Christ is the center. He is the heart of creation, of redemption, and indeed of this paragraph. Christ is the center of everything. He is, he is the one who brings all things to their fulfillment. I've, I've suggested that the book of Colossians can be summed up as setting forth who Christ is, what Christ has done, who you are in Christ, and what that means for your life. Paul and Timothy write this letter to the Colossians to exhort and encourage them to hold fast. And they, and they, they assure them that They give thanks. They pray for them. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Your hope is is not merely in Christ. Your hope is Christ. As the hymn writer said, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Hope is the foundation for our faith and love, our life of walking by faith and living in love. And hope, as we saw last time, is, is not some vague wish That's, that if, if you say, I, you know, I hope it doesn't rain today, well, that's usually because we are afraid it very likely will. But for the believer, our hope is something absolutely certain. It's, it's still hope. You see, the difference between, between our hope and the world's hope is not in us. You see, when I say, my hope is in Christ and His return, that He's going to make all things right, and somebody else says, my hope is that I'll leave the world a little better than I found it. When it comes to me and my friend, we have just about the same chance of effecting the thing that we hope. Can I make Jesus return? No. Can he make the world a better place? No. That's why it's still called hope. Because this, and this is, this is why hope is, it, it's, it's why the 
unbelievers hope, oftentimes they're like, the reason why they settle on it is because they feel like, I can actually do something about it. Whereas we have, I mean, how are we, how are we going to actually bring about the return of Jesus? It's why sometimes their hope looks more realistic. Because we aren't the ones that accomplish it. But the reason why our hope is more solid and firm is because we are hoping. Our hope is in the promises of God. Our hope is in what He has said He will do. And He is faithful. He is far better at accomplishing things than we are. But of course, that requires us to put our hope in Him. That's, it's why Paul will say, if it's only for this life that we have hope, we are the most miserable of men. Because that's where, you know, I once, I once, I once had a friend who was, who was talking about, we were, we were talking about self-control in the Christian life, and, and, and as I was describing some of the challenges in that, he was like, wow, you Christians must have a tough time. I just do whatever I want. And, in one sense, sure, that's true. But, but then, what is the end? What is the goal? What is the purpose? Why do we humble ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross? Because our hope is that God will make all things right. For the believer, hope is something that is absolutely certain. Our hope is as certain in that respect as our justification by faith. You can have all the love in the world, but if it's not rooted in faith and hope, it cannot please God. You can have all the hope in the world, but if you're hoping in the wrong things, it's going the wrong direction. But hope is the foundation because without the hope that is laid up for us in heaven, our faith is pointless. Without the promise of Christ, why should we love? It's this hope in Christ that produces fruit in us, through the word of truth, the gospel. And that's what Paul gives thanks for. It's what he, and then it's what he also looks for uh, in believers. The fruit of the gospel is faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, rooted in the hope laid up for us in heaven, Jesus Christ. And so when Paul hears about their faith and their love and their hope, he gives thanks to God and he prays for them. So the first section of, of Paul and Timothy's epistle is summed up as because of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints, which was produced by hope and rooted in the word of truth of the gospel, Paul rejoices to hear this and he praises God for this, but then he continues to pray for you. Because, of course, we're not finished yet. We must continue to grow in grace. We must grow in, 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 our, in our lives, in, in our mind. We must grow in wisdom and knowledge, in our walk, increasing in holiness and good works, in our suffering, persevering patiently through trials, and in our thanksgiving to remember the great redemption that Christ has wrought. So let's look through this prayer in verses 9 through 14 as Paul and Timothy pray for us. First, Paul and Timothy pray that, that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What does it mean to know the will of God? Now, it doesn't mean that we know everything that God is going to do, but it's that we know that part of God's will concerning us. What does God wish for us to know? 
Well, to be filled with the knowledge of His will means to know what God desires for us to know and to do. Indeed, that's what the rest of the book of Colossians is about. Because what is God's will? Well, that we might know who Christ is, what Christ has done, who we are in Christ, and what that means for our lives. This is precisely where Paul will go, is laying out, this is the will of God for you. And Paul gives us two descriptions of this knowledge. First, wisdom, knowing how to live in God's world, and spiritual understanding, being led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. It's not merely head knowledge. There is, in one sense, there's no substitute for knowing the Word of God, for studying the Word of God, for learning the content of Scripture. But as as you learn doctrine, as you learn the teaching of the Bible, if it doesn't change the way you live, then you haven't really learned the doctrine. If you love the doctrines of grace, but you are not becoming more gracious, more forgiving, more humble, then you still lack the knowledge of God's will. Because Paul does not pray simply that you might learn about God's will, but he prays that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will, God's will means, means that it's, sure, you have to learn it. Because if you don't know the stuff, it's not going to fill you. But that when it's, it's why it's not just enough to, oh yes, I read my Bible today. And then I set it aside and forgot everything I read. But to meditate on the scriptures and to reflect on what is this saying? Who, who are we in Christ? What does this mean for our lives? This is, in other words, spiritual understanding, which means that it's granted by the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit give this knowledge? Through the ordinary means of grace. Studying the scriptures. I mean, yes, it's partly why I preach through the whole Bible, so that you will hear the whole of the scriptures. But part of what I want that to accomplish, because I realize not all of you have been here for 19 years, so you haven't actually <laughs> heard the whole series, but that's where what I do in my preaching is I want you to, to see these connections. Like when I make the connections between Jeremiah 17 and Ezekiel 17. I want you to, to think about, okay, so the next time you're reading in the prophets, oh, I should be thinking about connections between Jeremiah and Ezekiel because they're, that's what, you know, they know each other. So, I mean, that's, okay, that, 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 those are useful things. But then, but as you study the scriptures, study them prayerfully, seeking to understand what the Spirit is saying by the Word. And the purpose of the spiritual knowledge is, as verse 10 puts it, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Spiritual understanding, true wisdom, always has practical results. Paul is speaking to those who are already Christians. He's speaking to the saints and to the faithful brethren, the faithful pastors, as we saw in verse 2. And he calls them to walk worthy of their calling because of who they are in Christ. So that's where just stuffing yourself full of knowledge doesn't actually accomplish it. You've probably all seen people who wind up cocky and arrogant even, who use their knowledge as a weapon to knock others down. Well, that is not walking in a manner worthy of their calling. Because the path that you walk 
is the test of your wisdom and knowledge. Does your knowledge of the scripture help you to walk worthy of the Lord in the path of wisdom? Or do you walk worthy of death in the path of folly? Because this is the second thing that Paul prays for in verse 10. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. Notice again how Paul weaves together the knowing and the doing. Now, it says, Paul Paul prays for you that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. Are you able to fully please God? Would you believe that the answer is actually yes? Now, don't get me wrong. We are all sinners. And left to ourselves and apart from His grace, never in a million years could you please God. But Paul prays that you and I would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. How? Okay, uh, just peek ahead because remember this is all now one sentence. So, <laughs> verse 12, he qualified us, or as he puts it in verse 21, he reconciled us through Christ's death, even while we were enemies in our minds by wicked works. So there's nothing that you can do in yourself to live a life that pleases God. If you are trusting in your own might and your own strength, your own ability, then that's not pleasing God. But if you are trusting in Christ, if then you may walk worthy of, of the Lord, and you do fully please Him. It's not that you don't sin, it's that when you sin, you repent. It's not that you're perfect, it's rather that you live your life by the grace of the One who is perfect, even Christ Jesus our Lord. It's where, when our confession and catechism talk about sanctification, it talks first about how the whole body of sin is is set aside. Basically, we are that there's our sanctification is sort of the beginnings of it is already complete. Sort of you have been united to Christ Jesus. The the old man is dead and you have been made alive in Christ. This is where Paul's going in chapter three. But this is you you are no longer who you once were. That you are now already fully pleasing to God because you have been united to Jesus. And that's where the gospel is now bearing fruit in you. This is what we saw in verse 6. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. You might, you know, how does the gospel grow? Well, obviously it's not by adding more content because the content of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself. The gospel grows by growing in you, by growing as both, both in terms of how more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel grows in that way, but also in how you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel grows both inside us and to, as we grow as the body of Christ. That you grow in the knowledge of God. You grow in walking in a manner worthy of your calling. And that means that we need to grow in those areas of our lives where we fall short. Where, where do you tend to struggle with sin? Do you have a tendency to, to say harsh things to your spouse? Have you gotten in the habit of, of lashing out at your children or your friends? Or are you just the sort that bottles it up inside and it steams? 
Where is the fruit of the gospel? Where is the knowledge of God and His grace overflowing into good works? We all know the saying, you you only hurt the ones you love. Now, why why is that? Part of it is, we're around them more often. We always tell young people when they're getting married, you realize, of course, this is the person who's going to sin against you more than anybody else your entire life. Your spouse is the person you're around the most, I mean, that's just, and you're closest to, so that's probably the person you're going to sin against more than anybody else. And the worst part is, most of the time you're not even going to realize you're doing it. But why? Oftentimes it has to do with our expectations. Yeah. Do, you, do you expect your wife to be always ready and cheerful when you get home from work? To, you know, just, so glad to see you, dear. Experience has probably taught you it's not always that way. But isn't there part of you that just sort of thinks you deserve it? And, oh, then you're bothered when she's not. But then we're not the same way either. We're not... If you've dealt with all of your failings, then you're in a good position to be upset with somebody else for theirs. It's Jesus' lesson about the, the log and the speck. And kids... Uh, do you expect your parents to be perfect? You probably learned by now they're not. But still you tend to think, oh, well, they, but they should be. After all, your, your whole life is still pretty much determined by your parents and their mistakes can mess up your life pretty quickly. Why do we have such a problem truly loving those who are closest to us? It's often because we're more concerned with ourselves than with others. We're more interested in, in getting things our way than with loving and serving those around us. Oftentimes in our, in our friendships, in our relationships, we tend to like other people. We tend to sort of enjoy their company because of what they do for us or how they make us feel. But true love seeks to love and serve and provide for others. When we think about an awful lot of our friendships are actually based on a sort of very selfish, sort of self-gratifying sort of love. But our Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us while we were still sinners. And that's the pattern that he set for us. It's actually very much the same way that even as our hope is focused on on when our, uh, when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Our hope is focused on that end, that goal, which then frees us to love and serve others. You see, if our, if our hope, if our focus is on, I want to get a good job, or I want to get married, or I want, when my hope becomes focused on this thing in my life, then I get, I get really selfish about all the other things around it. Bearing fruit in good works means being more concerned for the interests of others than in whether you get what you want. Growing in the knowledge of God means gaining the wisdom to be understanding and forgiving when they fail. Because we are going to fail each other. We are going to face situations where we don't want to love, where we don't feel like forgiving, where we've been sinned against and we just want to get back at them. Well, that, that, this is life. This is hard. We're not strong enough for this. 
Paul and Timothy understand that. That's why they keep praying. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. As we bear fruit in good works and grow in the knowledge of God, we will face trials. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's, it, you have to have your eyes and your heart fixed upon Jesus. Growing in grace is not easy. Walking worthy of the Lord can be a painful path. But Paul promises that we are strengthened with God's own strength. Patience and endurance will be given to all God's people as they face various trials. And, and Paul even promises that this will come with joy. Endurance and patience with joy. Not, not that we like the trials. We are told to rejoice in our trials. doesn't mean you have to re- rejoice at your trials. You're not saying, woohoo, I get to suffer. Yay, I love suffering. No, no, it's not that you love suffering. It's that you love Jesus. And he's, he came and joined himself to our humanity. He became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that he is by grace. We are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Because notice, notice what you're strengthened with. Do you really think that God's power is insufficient for you? I don't, I don't think that's the problem for most of you. I think most of you, you have no doubt that God's strength is sufficient. Your question is, is God going to actually show up and do something? It's why we read, it's why we read Ezekiel. It's why I like spending so much time in the prophets. It's one, it's one of the things that, back when I started on this whole idea of preaching through the whole Bible, I was like, okay, like 40% of the Bible is about the exile. And yet in most churches, you wouldn't by any stretch say 40% of the preaching is talking about the exile. I was like, why? what am I going to do with this? But this has influenced the way I preach the rest of Scripture too, because... Think about what they're going through for Ezekiel, for Jeremiah, for the faithful who live through the exile. This is going to be their life. They will die in exile. They will die before they ever see the promises of God come to pass. And they know it in advance. (laughs) But this is where their confidence, their hope, is not that they're going to live a great life. Their confidence and their hope is that God will make all things right, that he will establish his kingdom, and that in the midst of their life, they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being strengthened with all might according to his glorious might, his glorious power, that because even in the midst of exile, even while they're living in Babylon, God promises to be with them. God says he'll be with the exiles in Babylon. He's not going anywhere. God will be with you. It doesn't mean that you get what you want. It means that he will be with you in the midst of every situation you face. That That his strength will be there. That it may not feel like it sometimes. But he will be present in the midst of every dark path.
And that's why Paul gives thanks in the way that he does. It's almost as though he's responding to the one who says, I'm sure that God's glorious might is indeed glorious and mighty, but down here I don't see it. And so Paul says in verse 12, Therefore we give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's almost as though Paul's answering the exiles. Because what God has done in Jesus is precisely what Ezekiel 17 had said. He has brought about the day when that branch would be planted, when there would be a king sitting on the throne. Jesus is now sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And therefore, because Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, therefore, He has now begun His kingdom. And you have been united to Him. He has qualified you. It's not that... It's not that God's sort of like, oh, yeah, I think, I think you're qualified. Yeah, 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 yeah you'll, you'll do. You, I'm not sure about you. No, no. It's, he doesn't look around and say, well, who is qualified? No. He qualified you. He called you to himself to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. While we were enemies, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God sent his son to die for us, that through him, He might deliver us from the power of darkness and bring us into the inheritance of the saints in the light. You no longer dwell in darkness. You are heirs of the light. His light shines in the darkness. Now, sometimes I know, sometimes sometimes you're like, okay, I can't see anything in any direction. His light shines in within you you may not be able to see it sometimes but his light shines we are heirs of the light we are no longer under the power of darkness we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son jesus christ is called the the son of god's love what what, what does that mean well, it's where he's going next. In the, Jesus as the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who receives the full inheritance. This was what this is what Ezekiel had spoken of, what Isaiah had spoken of, what what all of the Old Testament had been pointing to, that there would be the one who would inherit God's own kingdom. That this would be the one who would come. And Jesus is that one, and we have been united to him. In His blood, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. When, when God looks at you, He doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees the blood of Christ who shed His blood for you. On the cross, in His death, Christ, the Son of God, came under the power of darkness. Christ, the Son of God, inherited the wrath of curse of God. Christ, the Son of God, was disqualified and disinherited by the Father. That in His taking the wrath and curse of God, we might no longer be heirs of darkness. Because in His resurrection, 
you have now been set free from the power of darkness. In Christ's resurrection, you have now been qualified as an heir with all the saints in the light. In Christ, you have been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son. You have received redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus has done. That He has brought you out. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. Darkness is no longer your home. And brought you, has transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. We give thanks to You, O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that You have qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, that You have delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of Your love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And we praise You, our Father, for this great redemption which You purposed before the foundation of the world, for the hope that is laid up in heaven for us, our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns at Your right hand. And we praise You, O Son of God, for Your great mercy, that although You were in the form of God, You did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but You humbled Yourself and took the form of a servant, submitting even to the death of the cross for us and for our salvation. And we praise you, O Holy Spirit, that you have come and raised us up to the heavenly places and seated us with Christ at the right hand of the Father. And we pray that your gospel would continue to bring forth fruit throughout the world that it would grow and flourish in our hearts. Strengthen us, we pray, with all might, according to your glorious power, for in ourselves we are weak. Have mercy upon us and be gracious to us for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.